0: Hi, everybody. This is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. And in this episode, we'll be speaking with Mesero's Paul Mariani and taking a look at the merger and acquisition activity in the meat and animal protein sector since the advent of COVID. And I'd also like to thank Mezzero for sponsoring this episode and their continued support of the Food Institute. If you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. We find that word of mouth is still our best advertising vehicle. And if you'd like to learn more, feel free to email me at chris.campbell at foodinstitute.com, and we can find out if you might be a good fit as a guest or a sponsor for the show. And with that all said, we welcome Paul back to the show. How are you today, Paul?
1: Thanks, Chris. Uh, good to be speaking with you again and appreciate your time today.
0: Not a problem, and we're really excited to have you back on the show. For those who may have missed the original episode that you did with us, could you give a little bit of a background about yourself and Mesero? I'm a managing director in Mesero's
1: Investment Bank, uh, focusing on middle market uh, mergers and acquisitions and capital formation transactions within the food, beverage, and and agribusiness industry. Mesero is an independent, employee-owned, diversified financial services firm based in Chicago with offices around the world. Mesero Investment Banking has a middle and lower middle market focus, which, at least in terms of the food value chain, I typically define as working with private equity and family founder-owned businesses that generate between $5 million and $50 million of EBITDA.
0: All right, perfect. And I think what we're going to talk about today is taking a look at the meat and poultry markets overall in the U.S., but also taking a look at M&A activity in that sector. And I think a great place to start would be you giving us a viewpoint of those red meat and poultry markets overall. I was wondering what you could say about the current status of those kinds of companies and also maybe a little bit of a prospectus about where they could be going over the next five years.
1: sure yeah the uh, you know the meat industry is is very large, no surprise. it's about a hundred and seventy billion dollar market. Uh, depending on how you cut it and um you know I, i'd also it'd also be worth mentioning that the alternative protein market's probably about a four ish billion dollar market today, so you know all proteins probably two to three percent of the total market but uh but growing very rapidly in the sort of eleven to twelve percent range um you know broadly speaking, the protein sector you know has experienced a variety of you know external factors over the past decade um disruption probably being highest on the list, um, which is frankly supported by, you know, an undercurrent of changing consumer purchasing preferences, which has, you know, sort of made it a relatively dynamic subsector within the uh, the broader food industry. Um, there's been uh, quite a bit of dislocation historically and more recently, uh, more recently tied more so to supply chain interruptions, uh, related commodity volatility. Uh, There's been a continuation for many, many years of consolidation, uh, which is, frankly, tied more so probably to the M&A market. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, sort of this disruptor um, with the onset of alternative uh, uh, proteins. Uh, You know, the certain sectors within protein are highly concentrated. Um, Take beef, for example. Beef is, without question, the most concentrated uh, part of the value chain, particularly on the processing side, while others tend to be more fragmented. But again, on a on a relative basis, so highly highly concentrated overall. But there are pockets of fragmentation um, throughout the industry. Uh, in terms of the outlook and kind of what we're seeing, I think you know broadly speaking, you know it's our expectation that we'll continue to see rising meat prices. Um, you know, with demand outstripping supply on the processing side, certainly. Um, I already mentioned sort of commodity volatility. That's been sort of front and center for us as we transact within the sector, particularly on the grain side, which is the primary input cost. Um, and, and we're seeing corresponding price increases, you know, making their way onto the store shelves and uh, into the restaurant, uh, frankly, at the consumer's expense now. Uh, however, it's our expectation. And I think history would would also suggest this, that uh, volatility will begin to normalize for what we hope are sustained periods in 2022, you know, as the uh, lingering effects of COVID, uh, particularly on the U- in the uh, in the U.S. supply chain, continue to wane. And, and, and frankly, we, we're already seeing that trend take effect with uh, some of our existing protein clients, which is which is good news all around, both for the operator, frankly, and and certainly the consumer. Uh, I guess the last thing I'd add in terms of just the broader market and some of the underpinnings that are presenting maybe challenges today is no surprise labor availability. And just the rising overall costs of doing business, I think continue to be you know problematic um, for the uh, near term foreseeable future uh, obviously there 's a lot of policy and, and secular factors at play there, but that 's certainly been i think a challenge all the way around and it transcends into other uh,
0: across other industries of course so one of the points you brought up there was about plant based slash alternative proteins uh, cell cultured probably also falls into that, so I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and just kind of. Show your experience with how these plant-based and cell-cultured startups are affecting those traditional titans in the beef and poultry markets, and how that might be affecting M and A a little bit. Uh, you know, overall with the protein market. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'd probably start uh, by saying you know
1: billions have poured into the plant-based market. I think it was about three billion altogether in 2021. Just is a staggering amount of capital chasing um, what are in many instances much earlier stage upstart companies. Uh, but you know, there's been a very, uh, significant trend over the last, you know, five years or so, and, and we don't see any evidence that this is going to let up anytime soon. And, you know, you're seeing deployment across all types of actors, institutional capital providers, um, large protein integrators and, and corporate venture arms of large CPGs. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, our view and in, in most, I think most others that, you know, there's a huge runway for this category. Um, and, and I think it's largely driven by, uh, either real health benefits, and in some cases, perceived health benefits, uh, and importantly, uh, how consumers have placed a growing value on sustainability uh, and environmental stewardship. And that's also uh, impacted how institutional capital providers have begun to thematically deploy their capital. So it's been a pretty interesting uh, part of the protein sector. Um, I think sort of macro in the U.S., Uh, In particular, I I suspect the notion of a more of a flexitarian consumer will drive the lion's share of the category demand. I think, uh, you know, look, consumers enjoy choice and and choice that enables them to make, you know, decisions that make them feel not only good about what they're putting into their bodies, but also feel good about the impact those decisions have on the the broader uh, environment. So I think you're seeing a natural uh, gravitation toward some of these alt-protein Branded in, in private label products. Uh, I, I think my personal view, though, is you know the trend has seemingly lost some some of the wind in its sails uh, more recently, particularly within food service. So no surprise. Uh, but I think generally speaking, uh, all protein is always going to have a, a pretty meaningful place in the marketplace. I think rebounding food service, um, which we're seeing evidence of clearly in this environment, will will be a further boon for the category. Uh you know, if you were to ask me, is it going to be mainstream anytime soon? I think fractionally mainstream as compared to animal proteins, particularly in the US. Um I do think the key variable here is gonna be, you know, how soon do we reach price parity with respect to alt proteins and animal proteins? And, and frankly, that's a shorter horizon today for plant-based proteins and probably a much longer one for something like that you mentioned, Chris, sort of a cell cultured product. Uh and I guess, you know, at the end of the day, um, the way I kind of think about all proteins is, you know, look, it's, it's, it's growing within a massive broader protein sector and it's growing at a rate of three to four times sort of the underlying traditional growth rate um, of the, of the broader sector. So, you know, it's hard to say where it's going to go. There's, there's lots of estimates out there regarding how big it's going to be in the next three, five, 10 years. The numbers are staggering, no matter how you cut them. But I think the reality is there's a lot of high dollar value, to the subsector and um, I think that's going to um, cause a lot of interplay not only with the traditional industry titans as you you referred to earlier but as well as the pure play companies like the Beyond Meats of the World and the Impossible Foods.
0: And I think that really kind of vibes with a lot of the stuff we've seen at the Food Institute over the last year, you know, that blistering growth rate that plant based had, you know, probably wasn't sustainable. But I also agree that I think the flexitarian is probably the spot where you're going to see, you know, the most adoption and probably the long term kind of consumer Uh, interest in these products. I don't think you're going to see people completely switching to them, but definitely going to be maybe eating them once or twice a month, maybe a little bit more. So I do think that's probably where a lot of the growth kind of remains, but I think it's a really exciting time to kind of see how that's affecting the traditional protein markets. And I'm wondering with all of that in mind, how do you see M&A looking like with these new entries into the, you know, animal slash, I guess, overall protein market is the best way to put it, but how cell cultured and plant-based is kind of affecting merger and uh, acquisition activity in the sector? Are you seeing these companies being bought up by bigger companies? Do you think that these companies are looking to just be startups and get off on their own? How do you see that affecting m going forward?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And look, it's a combination of you know, sort of all of the above. I mean, there's no, there's no question. There's sort of this sort of pure play magnet of, of capital chasing some of these earlier stage companies that have now, you know, in some instances grown to be very formidable competitors with scale and, you know. Uh, large, large scale distribution and, 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 and prominent uh, presence on the shelf, uh, within retail grocery and, and, and certainly within food service. So yeah, look, it's, it's certainly, you know, my view is, you know, there's no shortage of catalysts in and around the traditional meat industry. There's, there are lots of, um, compelling strategic reasons, um, that, uh, operators are pursuing, you know, strategic M&A transactions, whether it's to bolster, um, you know, existing capabilities to vertically integrate, we've seen a lot of that this year, Um, whether it's, um, you know, something more upstream, like having access to a certain genetics profile, when you're talking about, you know, upstream livestock, for example, Um, And then just other value added capabilities throughout the value chain. So there's, there's no shortage of catalysts um, that are, that are, that are, you know, continuing to propel what's been a fairly active M&A market in protein overall. And frankly, historically, Uh, so that, that, that's a good thing. I think in terms of some of these better for you categories, uh, alt protein and alike, um, you know, look, there are some very sizable, formidable public and private companies out there that we, we, we've sort of referenced earlier um, but no question, it has a permanent place uh, in the broader CPG, large protein integrator world. Um, they've been very acquisitive uh, with respect to high growth brands that purely play in the space. Uh, and also many, if not most of the big CPGs have, have taken organic an organic growth strategy and put a lot of capital behind the development of their own brands to uh, go head to head with the, the Beyond Meat, to the World and the Impossibles and the corns, etc.
0: I appreciate that insight. And I think what we can do now is move a little bit away from the plant base and maybe more into the traditional animal protein sector. And I know over the summer, you recently helped that family-owned pork producer with a sale Uh, And I'd like to explore this a little bit more. I think we can use it somewhat as a case study in the current environment. And I think that's a good place to start is what would you say the current landscape's looking like for family owned businesses and corporate entities in the meatpacking sector? Uh, What would you say that dynamic is like right now?
1: Uh, Yeah, I know it's become very interesting. And I think a lot of this sort of started to sort of perpetuate right in the throes of COVID, frankly, and and maybe a little bit before then, but certainly it kind of really sort of evidenced itself when we were sort of in the throes and and, and not really clear on sort of where this whole thing was was going. Um, I think when you think about some of the small and middle sized companies that are frankly competing with the uh, larger uh integrator integrators in the sector, you know you naturally have sort of a disconnect between scale and scope of business between you know vertical integration or not fully vertically integrated you know, the jury was out several years ago on whether that was a good strategy or not. I think what we've seen is, you know, evidence would suggest when there are disruptions to the supply chain that being vertically integrated could be a good thing and, and probably is in many cases. Um, you know, clearly, you know, access to capital is always a thing, you know, when you're talking about size and scope of a business, how you deal with commodity volatility um, that, you know, which ties, frankly, to the broader risk profile of the much larger players versus some of the smaller players. But, you um, you know, we've we've seen a lot of um, what I'd say are fairly well capitalized mid sized protein companies pursue, uh, or endeavor to pursue opportunistic direct investments in businesses that you know enable them to achieve some of those those capabilities, so that they can frankly, you know, continue to compete head to head with either larger players uh, in the industry. Or, um, you know, continue to be competitive in the very niches, um, you know, where they, you know, that they excel in. And, you know, frankly, we've seen, you know, more often than not, a lot of folks in the protein space are met with, uh, particularly in this environment, the challenge of basically taking on more growth than they can handle. I mean, we have a client right now that's kind of going through that same same you know, what I call high quality problem where they have more retail programs on the come than they can frankly service. And so the question is, okay, what do we do? How do we, how do we expand our, our, our our portfolio of capabilities so that we can continue to meet the demand that, um, that our retailer customers are, are asking us to. So, so look, it's, it's been a very dynamic, uh, certainly environment. Um, you know, there's always a natural, I guess, perceived disadvantage between small family owned and, the large folks that play in the space, but I think the reality is those that have, you know, good balance sheets, good operators, nice market positions, uh, very competitive in their particular niche, um, have absolutely looked to advisors to help shepherd them through a process, which in some instances may be a partial exit, full exit, or uh, uh, conversely on the buy side, where they're looking at, you know, buying a direct competitor or or, acquire someone that delivers an adjacency that helps them sort of broaden their scope of of capabilities and, and continue to be competitive.
0: So I know we're talking about the acquisition aspect there, but what about smaller family operations that are looking to sell? What kind of market factors are you seeing right now, or at least what are they telling you sure. uh, when they're looking to do these kinds of sales? What kind of market factors are influencing those kinds of decisions right now?
1: yeah that's a great question and it's it's no surprise. It's a conversation we're having often, uh which is you know from my perspective, a, a wonderful thing because we love to get out and talk to business owners about you know what what it's going to take to help them achieve some of these um you know positive uh albeit hurdles that they that they need to uh, that they're met with. Um, you know a lot of times when we're talking to folks, um you know more often than not, the business is at some sort of key inflection point. And that can be defined, you know, very broadly. Obviously, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies to um, either the shareholder base and um, generational components of of folks that may want to stay in the business or older generations that are looking maybe for an exit or a partial exit. Um, I think uh, risk-adjusted capital availability is always always one of those things. And I say risk-adjusted because a lot of these are, you know, very, you know, good businesses, strong operators, good balance sheets, very profitable, have plenty of access to capital. But when they do their own personal sort of risk calculus, um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to go out and get the capital that they're able to, if you will. Um, Another, you know, uh, related topic there, uh, probably going the other way, we have this conversation all along is business owners uh, wanting to frankly de-risk their personal balance sheet, you know, more often than not. You know, the whole of their net worth is tied up in the very, very business. Excuse me, that they've that they've built over many, many years, and the things that you know keep them up at night aren't always the things that you and I may think would keep us up at night. And so, it's it's always a very interesting conversation um, when you're talking to these folks about those sorts of um, issues and, and and concerns, if you will. Um, I think some of the other more obvious ones are, you know, look uh, the need or desire to scale. Certainly, no surprise there. Uh, when you're talking about specifically in the protein world, um, again, that you alluded to it or, or, or pointed to it in your prior questions, that interplay between mid-sized companies and 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 the and the big folks out there. I mean, that's always a challenge. And with the experience we've had right through COVID and currently in the in the current state, you know, securing offtake capacity has has been a, a real Significant sort of you know elephant in the room effect, if you will, um, so that you can you know ensure that you you know products getting to the getting to the right place and getting through the the value chain and onto the shelf. Um, legacy issues we talked I, I sort of made reference to that that, that that's always one. Um, and then lastly, I guess on the sell side in particular, um, a lot of clients just come to us through a lot of different channels and and they recognize either that the market is just so good right now that they're willing sellers and and maybe are willing sellers much sooner in the life cycle of the business they've grown than they expected, you know, while others uh, have recognized that there may be, you know, for example, rampant consolidation and, you know, imminent or more intense competitive threats to their business that may limit shelf space opportunities in the grocery store. Um, And uh, you know, realize that maybe an exit with or a partial exit with an institutional partner or an exit outright, an outright exit, excuse me, with a strategic is probably uh, a win-win from their perspective in terms of sustaining the legacy of the business that they invested in and built. And secondly, um, and maybe firstly, and depending on the entrepreneur, um, giving them an opportunity to really monetize, um, you know, monetize the very business that they've built.
0: So I very rarely want to talk politics on this podcast, but I do think that it's worth bringing up because I think earlier this year we saw that USDA and the Biden administration overall kind of signaled they were willing to support smaller businesses. I think it's arguable whether that happened or not. But I do think in the light of new tax plans and also that kind of signal that they might be more willing to support these small businesses, do you think these guys have more you know, negotiating power or do you think that this is more just you know, news? media kind of fluffing up some of these ideas here? Do you think that they have any kind of extra leverage because of the new climate here? They being the smaller business owner? Yeah, that's what I would be talking about.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. You know, we've seen some evidence. I don't know that they have more leverage per se, but I would say we're seeing this evidenced in our upstream, uh, both protein and other agribusiness clients, where um, there are some things the USDA... Is doing from a regulatory perspective. I mean, the challenge I have with this this question, and I, I don't mind the question, is there's two sides to that 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 coin naturally. But yeah, I think what you're tr- what you're seeing evidence broadly speaking is an active USDA um, that's looking out for the in some instances sort of the smaller small business operator. But again it becomes a pretty complicated discussion because take beef, for example, you can get into, okay, the Packers are sitting pretty right now. There may be a lot of small business owners that are Packers today. There are that um, are benefiting from the underlying dynamics today. But when you get onto the, you know, the feeder side and the cattle side of the equation, you know, those folks are, are, are certainly having a more difficult time, Uh, generating what I would say is arguably an acceptable margin. So it's pretty complicated, but I would say generally speaking, we are seeing some adjustments um, by the USDA as an example that transcend into um, certainly the pork sector, certainly into the specialty egg sector, and a variety of other, call it protein and protein-related businesses.
0: And one last thing I'd like to talk about here, too, you did allude to it a little bit, but COVID-19 was obviously a major disruptor um, across the entire supply chain. But I think one of the ones that got the most experience, well, not experience, but the most exposure was really the cattle supply in the United States. I can't tell you how many articles I read and or wrote about this early in the pandemic. So I was just wondering, you know, taking a look at the challenges, maybe even some of the opportunities presented by COVID for some of these operators, how do you think smaller meatpacking and producing companies reacted? And I guess what kind of learnings did they take from that and kind of apply to the current day?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, we we lived it uh, right through COVID with one of our clients. Um, And, you know, I always say, you know, there's no shortage of of both problems and high-quality problems that um, uh, percolated uh, with COVID-19, that's for sure. I mean, it presented a lot of, you know, operational and competitive challenges really tied mainly to the supply chain. Uh, health and safety and and frankly going back to our sort of short USDA narrative there on, on the regulatory side um, so you know look I, I think just generally speaking you know I like to think of it a little bit as an aberration. Um, I, I think what it certainly did on the uh, lower end uh, lower end uh, meaning size and scope smaller and mid- market uh, producers and packers it certainly accelerated, um, their propensity to explore vertical- I hate to keep saying vertical integration, but it's just been a sort of a centerpiece of discussion in protein, but it has certainly accelerated transactions in and around ex- you know, in and around vertical integration. We, we've seen that with larger uh, mid-sized, I guess, mid-sized uh, producers, Going uh, downstream and either acquiring and/or making non-control equity investments in packers or greenfielding or brownfielding very sizable facilities. You're seeing that uh, both in pork and you're seeing that in beef. Probably less so in poultry. So, um, yeah. Look, COVID nineteen was you know, and, and frankly, going back to the commodity volatility comment, you think about navigating a transaction in an environment where you know at least in terms of i know you mentioned beef but i'll just give you you know pork as a as an example here in terms of commodity volatility um, you know from the onset of covid uh to you know call it a few months ago you know we saw the the price of lean hogs go from you know 42 43 cents a pound to you know a dollar ten uh, imagine navigating a transaction in that environment where that 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 lean hog inventory is sort of a big component of value so it, it definitely creates a lot of Challenges, but I would frankly say, my my, the better telltale for me was it. It it really drove a lot of opportunity. It it certainly contributed to some transaction velocity, um, and um, um, you know I I think we're hopefully in a better spot today than we once were. But I think we're going to see some of that um, appetite to continue down this vertical integration road or anything that's sort of tangential to that same sort of rationale for contemplating a transaction. I think we're going to continue to see that. We have a, a client currently that's that's going down that road right now. So um, I think there's a bit of a runway there.
0: So to close up today's conversation, I think we can do a little bit of a thought experiment. And what I'll ask here is I'm going to say that I'm a family-owned business owner, uh, sorry, a family business owner in the you know beef slash poultry slash pork producing uh, industry. And I'm going to be looking to sell. So what I'm going to ask you here is to just kind of give some tips and some ideas about what I should be thinking about if I'm going through one of these transaction ideas and what other advice could you give me?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, you know, if I had to choose some sort of key, key themes, none of these are necessarily going to be earth shattering, but I, I guess I'd probably bucket it into a few, a few categories. I think first and foremost, and I'll, I'll, I'll lay them out and maybe go back to them. I think first and foremost, you know, having that important, Sort of fluid discussion about weighing the risks and rewards of, of doing a transaction um, now versus in the future. Obviously, that's fundamental, but it, it's interesting how that that conversation can can evolve. Um, I think secondly, you know, uh, and this probably goes without saying, uh, and sounds a little bit self serving, but hire a sophisticated investment banker uh, to provide the needed advice along, but prior to and along the way. Um, I guess thirdly, you know, preparation is hyper, hypercritical, uh, and then I guess fourthly, um, you know, be committed to a process if ultimately that's the decision you're going to make, um, and I, I can dig into that a little bit more if that's if that's helpful, but, um, you know, on the, we have a lot of risk-reward discussions, you know, is the timing right, am I doing it for the right reasons, um, are there more uncontrollables that I'm comfortable not knowing, you know, the answer to or the outcome related there to? Um, you know, we like to socialize or help at least point folks in a direction that enables them to have internal, external conversations with a trusted circle of friends, family advisors, you name it, to really talk about, you know, the market, you know, the market's great. There's no surprise there, but that's not the right answer for everybody. There are always trade-offs to doing a deal uh, and not doing a deal. So that that's a complicated, uh, it, it's an easy sort of thematically. It's very simple, but it's it, it it's not an easy um, uh, conversation to have. And, and depending on the constituents or family members or uh, relevant shareholders involved, it, it can get very complicated. Uh, my second comment on hiring a sophisticated investment banker kind of probably goes without saying, but I think at the end of the day, you really want someone that you you're, you're aligned with um, from just frankly a pure fit perspective, but just uh, more importantly than that, maybe even just from a philosophical perspective, you really want the right um, individual with the right experience um, looking out um, for you and, and, and on your behalf as you navigate what's going to be um, a myriad of complex hurdles to get through uh, from the time you decide to potentially uh, explore a process, to be in market, to closing a transaction, uh, on the preparation front i you know I just can't emphasize enough how important it is for folks to have their house in order, and not everybody has their house in order to the same standard, and that's not what I'm suggesting here, but it really ties back to you know having you know having your your day to day uh financial and commercial uh components to your business. Uh, and a state, for that matter, sort of organized, and, and having an advisor in early or advisors in early to help sort of walk one through, sort of what it means to be prepared. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all trying to be efficient, maximize value, and minimize negative surprises. And that—that's what you know. That's why preparation is so key because there's always going to be a surprise. Hopefully, it's not too negative. Hopefully, it's largely positive or they're largely positive, but it doesn't always shake out that way. Um, and, and not much more really to add on the commitment side, but really, um, the only thing I would add there is, you know, what I always say, and it's very obvious to probably any business owner, you know, this is probably going to be one of the most important endeavors you will undergo, um, certainly at least from a financial and commercial perspective. And so being sort of all in and fully committed is hypercritical to one's success and, um, there are a lot of good advisors like Mesereau out there that um, have an expertise in really making sure the appropriate blocking and tackling is being taken care of you know, by the advisor so that the management team, the family, or whatever constituents you're talking about can focus on the most important thing, which is managing the day-to-day business. So those are probably the four sort of buckets that would come to mind from my perspective.
0: Well, thank you very much for sharing your perspectives today, Paul. If someone wants to learn a little bit more about Mesero or reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach out?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the best way is to want uh, to click on our website, uh, uh If you click on investment banking under capabilities, you'll have access to the full team and all the sectors we serve. And um, can't thank you enough again for giving us the time today.
0: Not a problem, and that'll bring us to the close of this episode of the Food Institute podcast. Remember, if you're new to the podcast, please follow, like, and share. Till next time, this is Chris Campbell, signing off.